This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Thank you so much for that introduction, Sonia. And um, I understand we, we won't have questions at the end, so if you want to hear more about what happened in El Paso, we can do that as well. Um, it is such an honor to get this award, generally, and it's an honor to, uh, to receive it from you. And this is particularly um, powerful for me because of the legacy of Dr. Kirstein, who was a pillar in the NIH community and always had this undying commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I'm really honored to receive this award. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I was trying to frame it in the context of this history of Dr. Kirstein and where we are. And that's where I came to the title of my talk, thinking about not only diversity but beyond diversity, building a culture of inclusion in science. And so just to give a sense of where we're going, the outline, I want to start with a framework for understanding diversity and inclusion. Um, building a culture of inclusion at an institutional level, building a culture of inclusion on a more um, individual level to think about student success. And I want to say a bit about my per the personal impact of inclusion on me, and I'll say a little bit about some of my science. So just thinking about the framework, I think it makes sense to start with some definitions. So diversity is the condition or of having a uh, condition of having or being composed of different elements. So diversity of ethnicity or racial diversity, um, gender, sexual orientation. But when we think about diversity in this way, it's sort of a numerical, it's like a number, right? And so what is the difference between diversity and inclusion? Inclusion is a, more of a practice of providing access and opportunities and resources and ultimately a sense of belonging. And so it's a feeling. So the difference between diversity and inclusion are practices that get from a, a number to a sense of the individuals within that community. And so, no surprise, diversity and inclusion are not the same. And so when I think about diversity and inclusion, I think diversity can almost be seen as being on a continuum, where the picture shown on the left is an example of diversity. There are different individuals in that group. But obviously, it's not, it doesn't appear to be sort of the optimal version of diversity. This is also diversity, where there are different individuals, and they're in the kind of general vicinity. But I think if you look closely, the, those individuals in the larger circle are not affected. They're not changed by those, the individuals in the smaller circle. And so for any undergraduate or anyone who's been part of a diversity program that didn't have as its motivation inclusion, this looks very familiar, and it looks like tokenism. So what is inclusion? Inclusion is a state in which there's full immersion, full, um, full inclusion of the groups. And I think, as you, you can see as well, that the environment is different in this state. So inclusion is a feeling. And I kind of like thinking about it this way. Diversity is sort of being invited to a dinner party. Inclusion is having a seat at the table. But ultimately, belonging is being glad you're there. And so if we can get from the state of thinking about diversity to inclusion to true inclusion and belonging, that requires action. And so I want to just take a moment to unpack this idea a little bit more 
and um, think about sort of the image on the right is intended to illustrate an important point that to get from diversity to inclusion, it requires reflection, reflection at a personal level and at an institutional level. And so the first thing to examine is, is the question of why. You know, if diversity is a destination, then what is the point of getting to that destination? Is it acquiring the number? Because if it's about the number, then getting to that harder step of inclusion is very unlikely to happen. <clears throat> and so one of the um, conversations that's happened recent, more recently in the last um, several years is an understanding that science is better if there's a science done by a diverse population of people. But this reflection really demands that we ask at an institutional level, do we really think that inclusion or diversity is necessary for excellence? Because in many institutions, there's an implicit thought process that diversity is a compromise, that excellence comes at the cost of diversity and vice versa. And if that's the case, and if the institutional values are excellence, it is highly unlikely that you'll ever get to inclusion. The second is to recognize that science is a culture. So it's very attractive to envision that science is a sort of an objective entity. But in reality, what is culture? Culture is the attitudes or behaviors of a particular social group. And so if one thinks about what science is, it, it really has evolved from the um, principles, the ideologies of individuals who had access to science. And hence, science as a culture emerges from that environment. And so really understanding that science as a culture is critical to questioning whether or not what we have looks like inclusion. And so then the next, thinking about kind of the transition from diversity to inclusion, the next necessary element is that we have to be willing to challenge assumptions. So let me illustrate this point. So this is an example you know, of an ecosystem, right? It's rich, it's diverse, and here's another example of an ecosystem, which clearly doesn't have the same qualities. So if we're challenging our assumptions, the questions that one can ask is, how can these fish on the left change so that they can adapt to and survive better in the environment? Okay, that's one way of phrasing the question. But another way of phrasing the question is, what's in the water? And so if we think about what's in the water, that question can only be asked if we understand that science is a culture, and a culture is not fixed. And so while it's very difficult, it is in fact possible to think about the culture of science as something that can foster diversity optimally. And so the, um, another, another illustration that, that I like is, um, is, is something like this and trying to understand why sometimes it's hard to get from diversity and inclusion and what the role of culture is. So it's, for example, you know, there are two fish, they're in a pond, they're frolicking about, and then a turtle walks by and leans over and said, hey, how's the water? And walks off, and the fish look at each other and they say, what's water? Right, it's this thing that is so ubiquitous that we don't even question it. I mean, besides the fact that they're fish and turtles talking, it illustrates the point that understanding culture is critical to getting at um, institutional change. And then finally, it's necessary to examine the structure, systems, and practices, and being willing to change them. 
And so, you know, culture is challenging because culture is what embeds our systems and our structures. And so in order to get to the point of inclusion, those have to both be challenged and they also have to be, we have to be willing to change them. So I can give one example at my institution. Uh, one of the observations is that there was a disparity, particularly in lower division classes for students from underrepresented groups and uh, the rest of their classmates. And so one of the assumptions can be that those students are just not prepared. Another assumption is that maybe we look at how we do the processes and procedures in the classroom that affect student outcomes. And in fact, what, was what we found is that classes that were graded on a curve tended to have the worst grade disparities. And so the switch from grading on a curve to straight scale where the standards were clear to everyone almost eliminated those grade disparities. So the systems and structures are things that have become embedded because of practice, and questioning those is essential to transformation. And so as I think about, sorry, as I think about my kind of role, as, as Sonia mentioned, um, I've recently become dean. When we think about the culture of inclusion, one of the things that really drives our thinking about it is how do we get to student success? And there are really three pillars that have been the focus of, of my work and career thinking about student-centered activities, thinking about the kind of pedagogy and curriculum that drives student success, and then, of course, the key element are faculty and faculty involvement. And so I want to be really clear from the beginning when I talk about student-centered activities, I'm not talking about changing students. I'm talking about thinking about what it takes for students to be successful, and then embedding those and aligning those with the curriculum and pedagogy to support that. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the work that I've been excited about doing um, in my time at UCLA. And I'm going to start by uh, illustrating something that really was a big motivator. And this is, I know you can't see all the details, so I'll describe it. This are the, these are the national statistics about STEM persistence, or how likely are students who start with an interest in pursuing STEM, how likely are they to uh, achieve a STEM degree. And on the far left um, are, the, with the dark bars, are uh, white students, and then, because it's hard to see, I just pinpoint, for example, African-American students. And so the national STEM persistence for white students is about 56% based on the um, 2019 studies, whereas for black students, it's about 33%. Okay, so one of the assumptions is that maybe they're just not capable, maybe they're just not ready. But then if you look at in social sciences, so that's STEM on the far left. If you look at social sciences, the difference between the persistence is dramatically different. And in fact, if you look at humanities, students in the humanities who are black students are more likely to persist. So is it the student or is it in the water? And when we even looked at the statistics at UCLA where we uh, have, are lucky to recruit outstanding students, right? Our persistence rate for underrepresented students ended up being still much less than for um, their non-underrepresented counterparts despite students were coming in with comparable GPAs, and despite the fact that students of color were tending to be more aligned with science degrees than, their, than other students. So what's the disparity? Is it in the water? So one of the questions is, what do we do to affect persistence? And I love this work by, um, described by um, Dr. Mika Estrada at UCSF, and what I like about it is it's taken a thousand, over a thousand students and many programs to try to understand what are the determinants of whether students are gonna persist in science. And what they found is that skills and abilities are poor predictors of persistence, in fact, that the best predictor is when students identify as scientists. 
and this is just a quote from the paper, but when things get hard and students have assumed the identity of a scientist, they're more likely to persist through um, whatever challenges they face. And so I think what this study illustrates comes back to this idea that inclusion, that the difference between inviting students to come into STEM and feeling included is the key to um, persistence and that idea of scientific identity. And so the program that I'm gonna talk about is I was fortunate to be named at Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, professor in 2014. And that uh, allowed me the opportunity to sort of think holistically about both how to do science, do good science, the kind of science I want to do, while also being deeply committed to both educational innovation as well as inclusion. And so from that, um, developed the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, UCLA Pathways to Success program. It's a multi-tiered, evidence-based approach to student persistence. But the focus and the key embedded piece of it was to think about this idea of scientific identity and pedagogy to support scientific identity. And so I'm gonna describe kind of the, the hallmark of the program that um, I'm really excited about. And that's a, a course-based undergraduate research experience, or CURE, um, called the Collaborative Undergraduate Research Lab. And the goal is to start with first-year students engaging them in developing scientific identity um, from their first months on campus. And uh, my lab studies RNA splicing, and so this lab class is directly connected to splicing because that's what I know. So um, features of the course, it's a six hour a week exploratory lab. The students expect that they're working toward publishable results. There's a didactic component to make sure that students are all starting on the same page um, and so that there's no sense of being sort of that there's the inequity of where students started. They attend several carefully selected research seminars, part of the departmental seminar series. And then they write a five-page NIH-style grant proposal for their midterm, and as we know, being a scientist, you revise and resubmit, which is what they do for their final exam. And then finally, uh, they do an oral uh, presentation of their work. And so, Again, really the goal in all of this is for students to think about what does it mean to be a scientist, but also participate in the practice of science. The things that drew us all to science, why not provide that as an opportunity for students? And so the lab itself is a genetic screen. Um, we use yeast, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, to um, dissect the function of key splicing factors. And so the overview, they do an insertion mutagenesis uh, with a disruption library. And then they, starting uh, with a temperature-sensitive splicing mutant, um, they select suppressors of the temperature sensitivity, analyze splicing, and then do whole genome sequencing to identify the site of integration. And so on the left is a schematic, and on the right, is one of the uh, groups of students. So I'll just show you an example of the results. Um, these are some of the suppressors. They isolate RNA and compare at the permissive and not permissive temperature. They compare splicing uh, using uh, RT-PCR. 
And then this is an example just that they do the bioinformatics. Okay, so this is what they do over the course of 10 weeks. Um, some pictures of the students. I think what is really exciting for me is that they get original data um, and they're making discoveries. And so you can see this is them in their final presentation. And it's always exciting to see how much they own the data. But it's actually also the outcome for students that uh, I think is particularly exciting. So what, I, what we do is we do a pretest and a post-test with questions decided to try to capture whether we see a change in students' identity as scientists and engagement as, um, as, as researchers. And so we ask, for example, a question, I understand what it's like to do research. And this is just a couple of sort of randomly selected um, students in one year to give you a sense of just on an individual level what the change looks like. And so even if we start with students who have pretty low sense of what they know what it's like to be a scientist compared to the end, we see significant claim, uh, gains. And similarly, even with students who start off with a, with a, a more um, maybe sophisticated sense of what they think it means to work in, the uh, work in the laboratory, also see gains. And if we look over a five-year average, this is really consistent that um, out of a scale of five, that in the beginning it's uh, 3.2, then by the end it's a sense of they understand is uh, 4.7, 4.69. And then the question whether they consider themselves a scientist, similar kind of analysis where you know, we see significant gains um, almost independent of where the students start. Um, but I love this quote from one of the students who described that they learn what it means to be a scientist and that they love it. Um, and this actually comes from a student who's now in an MD-PhD program at Columbia. Um, and similar gains over the six-year average. And so in addition to sort of thinking about what the impact is on student uh, awareness and sense of scientific identity, um, I think the, where some of the numbers I think are where we're particularly excited is that with the students who go through the pr program, we see a five-year persistence rate that is uh, about 97%, maybe a little higher. And I think it's interesting to kind of unpack, and we're doing the analysis, unpack the students who don't stay in STEM, and you know we're, we live in LA, two of them are acting, so. Um, but the majority of the students also, I think what's also important, participate in some mentored research experience. Um, at UCLA, that's a generally a high number, about 56% of our students participate in research, but of the students who go through the program, it's 79%. And so the ones who you are seeing here, these are a group of students who are at awards ceremony at the annual biomedical research conference for minority scientists on the right and on the left students presenting on campus. And as much as I would like to believe that all the students want to go and study RNA splicing for the rest of their time at UCLA, um, some do, but many don't. And this just kind of gives an example that the, starting with that experience, they take research with them to their next stage. And so these are just some of the students and, um, and some of their publications. So the take home message is, for me have been as follows. First of all, early authentic research experiences affect scientific identity. Demystifying the practice of doing science should start early to build identity, things like grant writing, seminars, and making the assumption that students are questioning our assumptions, right? Making the assumption that students are fully capable of engaging at that level. And then first year students are energized by fundamental research. 
And so I would just want to take a moment before I go on to acknowledge um, this, you know, none, nothing that we do that's exciting happens in a vacuum. And I've been extraordinarily lucky to work with terrific people. These are all people who've been in my lab at various times. Um, so Azad Hussain is a research scientist. We've worked together for many years. He's a brilliant scientist, but he also, we teach the course together. Um, Evan Merkhofer is a former postdoc in the lab. Um, he's now at Mount St. Mary, and he's also helped develop some of the early stages of the program, of the, of the lab, and at his own institution has been doing cures, including um, a modification of the genetic screen that I described. Um, Stephen is a postdoc, was a postdoc in the lab who developed the bioinformatic workflow that we use for the lab class. And then the three individuals on the right are three terrific graduate students who I've had the good fortune to work with, who all worked as TAs for the class, but also did a great job of sort of coaching students through the process of writing grants and, and doing the kind of things that we do in the lab all the time. So if I go back to the, my take home messages, I think for me, one of the most significant messages is to understand that research, not only are students energized by doing fundamental science, but also research is energized by the contributions of the students. And I wanna highlight this by just telling a little vignette about some of the science in my lab that has been influenced by the work of the students in the collaborative undergraduate research lab. And so this is a, another picture of one of the other classes, and I've highlighted two students, uh, Mariah Clark and Louis Torres, who um, identified an interesting mutant in our uh, screen. And so this just shows their data. Um, this is a dilution analysis in which the cells are spotted onto a plate at the permissive temperature, which you can see at 25 degrees, um, the cells are fine. And at the elevated temperature, this is the example of the temperature sensitivity. But with the insertion mutant, has, which is shown on the bottom, we see this beautiful suppression. And so this is kind of, uh, was, was work that was done by Mariah, the student described in the, in the uh, photo. And so one of the things that was surprising, though, is that even though we saw a suppression of the temperature sensitivity, we didn't see, when we analyzed splicing, we didn't see a suppression of splicing. And so, of course, this was kind of curious. And my first inclination is that you're a freshman. Who knows what happened? Let's move on. Um, however, the student, uh, uh, one of the students who identified the mutant, uh, Mariah, joined uh, my lab and worked closely with um, the uh, graduate student in my lab, who I'll talk a little bit about in a moment. And what we identified is, in fact, something interesting. So the insertion was in a gene encoding a protein called PBP1. And it was in a region of the protein that, a region of the gene that encodes the low complexity domain of the, of the protein. So a few things about PBP1. So it's the yeast homologue of ataxin 2. Ataxin 2 was identified in, as a genetic determinant of spinocerebellar ataxia, and poly-Q expansions are associated with um, ataxin 2 um, uh, aggregation. Mutations in ataxin 2 and RNA binding proteins contribute to ALS. And so what's interesting about it is it's starting to draw these connections between the potential low complexity domain and the RNA binding um, activities associated in splicing. And ataxin uh, 2 or PBB1 are components of a cytoplasmic stress granule. And the low complexity domain regulates the aggregation. And so um, the question, of course, that arose from the screen is why does disruption of PBP1 suppress a growth defect of a splicing mutant? 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the people who did the work, and then I'm going to summarize a lot of those, a, a lot of hard, hard work here. So um, Samantha Edwards was a graduate student in my lab. She just recently graduated, and she was a TA also for the class. Uh, Mariah on the left was from the class. Um, Nate is, uh, was an undergraduate who was working in my lab. They teamed up to pursue the project, and now it's being finished by Christopher Avalos, who was also one of the um, Curl students, um, and he's amazing. He's applying to MD-PhD programs this upcoming year, if you see his name. He's phenomenal. So um, what did they observe? So I'm just summarizing some results. The question, why is wild type PPP1 toxic? when splicing is defective, such that disruption suppresses those temperature sensitivity. And what we find is that domains of PBP1 contribute to toxicity. So we did this by mutating the RNA binding domain and the low complexity domain and found that those also suppress the temperature sensitivity. Um, splicing factor mutants in general can, suppress, um, can be suppressed by the PBP1 mutants. And so in general, mutations that cause accumulation of unspliced RNAs can be suppressed when those features of PBP1 are, um, are uh, removed. Again, as I mentioned before, the suppression is not strictly because of splicing recovery. Oops. And uh, we've done the microscopy, and we see that PBP1 accumulates in nuclear foci with unspliced RNAs, while the suppressors restore the cytoplasmic PBP1 localization and the appropriate signaling, and that's TOR signaling. So I think we have an idea <clears throat> of what the underlying suppression is. And so under wild type conditions, we see PBP1, which is shown here in green. However, under conditions in which there's accumulation of unspliced RNA, we find that it um, accumulates foci in the nucleus. And under conditions of stress, such as in the absence of glucose, PBP1 normally under wild type conditions localizes to the cytoplasm, in um, stress granules. However, what we observe is that in, when um, unspliced RNAs accumulate, that localization does not happen, and there's still accumulation of RNA um, in these nuclear foci. So we have a new way of understanding what splicing, <coughs> excuse me, splicing toxicity is, as opposed to it being because certain mRNAs aren't being produced. We think that the accumulation of unspliced RNA and the structures that form mediated by PBP1 through its low complexity domain is central to the toxicity. It raises a lot of other questions that we're excited about and we're trying to answer. Maybe we can talk about it later. Um, but I think this was reminiscent of something that was interesting to us if we think about the connection between PBP1 and ataxin-1. I just want to remind you of a result in which in TDP43, um, mutants, the inclusions that are in a mouse model that are found um, in, an, in an ALS mouse model, um, there are occlusions in the brains of mice. However, deletion of ataxin-2 relieves those inclusions, and it also leads to increased lifespan. So it's starting to get us thinking about maybe as we think about PBP1, it might be a useful model in understanding even human disease. So if I can circle back to this, where, where this started. So one of the things that I want to uh, emphasize is that as we think about kind of what does it mean to have a culture of inclusion, a key for student success, particularly as academics, is thinking about making it student-centered. What does it take for students to feel engaged in the scientific enterprise? 
And that's key to motivating how pedagogy and curriculum are adjusted in order to achieve an inclusive learning environment. But even if there is diversity, if we manage to kind of collect or get a group of students who look different engaged in the classroom, ultimately, it can never be operationalized unless that's happening in the context of a culture of inclusion. And that's on us. That's the work that comes at the level of the institution, of the faculty, of each of us individually. And I, one of the things that I've learned very clearly is that for the betterment of science and the quality of research, it is absolutely worth the work. And so I'd just like to uh, stop by and, and acknowledge um, the people in my lab. And I've been extraordinarily lucky to work with amazing graduate students, undergraduates, and postdocs. Um, I talked a little bit about Azad, who's helped lead the um, course that I described. Um, some of the undergraduates who have joined my, who joined my lab, like Chris and uh, Mariah, who contributed to the data and the story that I uh, told at the end. Um, but there are other members in the lab who mentor students, who do lab tours, who are deeply engaged and committed to inclusion. And I've been really lucky to attract people to the lab who share that value. And finally, of course, I want to acknowledge and thank my funding, in particular, in particular HHMI. Um, and one of the things that I just want to plug in and value is that the idea that excellence in science and diversity and excellence in teaching is something that has always been a value of HHMI, and so I feel extremely honored to have benefited from that trust. And so thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB annual meeting, held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBMB annual meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbmb.org.